Good morning. Welcome to Money Talks, leveraging the power of business and philanthropy in pursuit of racial justice. This conversation is part of the What's Next series of roundtables hosted by the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Minnesota. Following the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, the marches, the protests, and the calls for change, the College of Liberal Arts asked, what's next for us to eliminate institutional and systemic racism in society? Today's conversation is the first in a series of roundtables to address this important question while engaging experts from the College of Liberal Arts, as well as our community. Over the next hour, we'll focus our conversation on how the sectors of business and philanthropy can play a role in answering the call for racial justice and help create a path forward. Our moderator for today is Dr. Amelius White. Amelius is the Director of Public Engagement for the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Minnesota. Prior to this position, Amelia served in many roles at the university, working within the Office for Student Affairs and in the Office of the Board of Regents. Amelia volunteers the, as the Education Director for the International Fraternity of Phi Gamma Delta. He serves on the boards of the Campus Club, the Wiseman Art Museum, the Friends of the University Libraries, Clare House, and the Governor's Residence Council, and he is also an elections judge. Amelius, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Megan. Uh, as Megan said, my name is Amelius White. I'm the Director of Public Engagement in the College of Liberal Arts, and I'm honored to serve as the moderator uh, with such a great group of panelists today for the first roundtable in the What's Next series. Money Talks, leveraging the power of business and philanthropy in pursuit of racial justice. It's my pleasure to introduce our roundtable participants who are joining us for this important discussion. They are in alphabetical order, Shonda Smith-Baker, Senior Vice President of Impact Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you. Kara Carlisle, Vice President of Programs from the McKnight Foundation. Trista Harris, President of Future Good. And Jonathan Weinhagen, President and CEO, Minneapolis Regional Chamber. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Before I go any further, I would like to read a land acknowledgement. The University of Minnesota, Twin Cities, respectfully acknowledges that the land we are on today is the traditional and ancestral homes of the Dakota people. The university is founded as a land-grant institution, and we recognize that our founding came at a dire cost to the Dakota people. The Dakota were forced to cede their lands in return for goods and services, but the government did not uphold the terms of these treaties leading to widespread devastation. We recognize this painful past and we honor Dakota people's history on this land, their sovereignty, and their continued contributions to our region. Minnesota comes from the Dakota name for this region, Mene Sota Makose, the land where the waters reflects the skies. The Dakota and numerous other indigenous peoples whose cultural, spiritual, and economic practices are intrinsically woven to this landscape hold this land sacred. We recognize them as original stewards of this land and all, the and all the relatives within it who had thriving and vibrant communities prior to disruption by settlers. Today, the state of Minnesota shares geography with 11 tribal nations. By offering this land acknowledgement, we affirm tribal sovereignty and hold the University of Minnesota accountable to recognize and counter the historical and contemporary injustices that continue to impact indigenous people through mutually beneficial partnerships, research policies and practices that respect indigeneity. The roundtable will start with me posing several questions to our participants. There will be an opportunity for questions from the audience and we will end with a final question posed by me. 
If you'd like to ask a question, you can do so using the Q&A feature in Zoom. Unfortunately, because of the number of participants, we won't be able to get to everyone's question. Before asking the first question to our participants, I wanted to provide a little background on the origin of the What's Next series and provide some framing for today's topic of discussion. The What's Next Roundtable series was born in the weeks that followed the killing of George Floyd, which happened just a few miles from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities campus. As I worked from home and grieved his death, along with many others in the Twin Cities and around the nation and the world, I made a commitment to myself that allowed me to move beyond my grief and sadness. I committed myself to doing what I could in my sphere of influence to make sure that George Floyd did not die in vain. This series is a part of that commitment. The calls for racial justice, an end to police violence against African-Americans, an end to institutional and systemic racism requires action in a variety of sectors of our society. And we need to unpack what needs to happen so that the change that's desired and needed manifests. The What's Next series seeks to center the voices of community members as we seek to answer the question, What's next for us to eliminate institutional and systemic racism in the wake of George Floyd's death? The Twin Cities is blessed with a thriving community of businesses, small and large, including many of our nation's best known companies. We have a rich tapestry of nonprofits, including a strong philanthropic sector and a culture of giving back to the community. We also have some of the greatest racial disparities in the nation with regard to high school completion rates, home ownership, health status, economic well-being, and criminal justice. Businesses large and small hire people, they invest in communities, they can use their voice and their dollars to support change. Philanthropic organizations, particularly those with large endowments, have the ability to direct their resources and influence toward addressing issues related to racial justice. In the wake of George Floyd's death, many businesses and philanthropic organizations in the Twin Cities and elsewhere release statements that contain commitments, financial and otherwise, to, in response to loud and passionate calls for change. So given that context, my first question to our roundtable participants is this, what's next? How are the business and philanthropic communities responding to the killing of George Floyd in order to eliminate systemic and institutionalized racism? And I'll, I'll throw the question to you, Shonda. Yeah, thank you uh, so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. I think that it is a is a big question to start out with. And um, what I would say is that, um, you know, at the foundation, uh, the Minneapolis Foundation over the last three years, we have been um, going uh, more deeply into our strategic planning and creating a framework that really asks that question about what is our role and our responsibility as a foundation to address the, some of the most challenging issues that we're faced with in our country. It so happened that in the midst of our planning, um, George Floyd happened in our hometown, but there have been uh, George Floyds and other brown and black men that have been getting killed on a regular basis across the country. And um, with seeing this visible, and visual um, display of not just death, but trauma in our community. Um, I think every single institution, every single foundation should be asking their, their, themselves a question on are we doing enough to address the issues? Um, I am super clear that money is not gonna solve it, but money can be a catalyst. It could be used for good. Um, but there are things that we also need to acknowledge within our institution in terms of our practices 
um, in, in some of the ways that we have either been accessible or inaccessible to people in community. I think that philanthropy um, and, and our own, uh, what we're doing at the Minneapolis Foundation is you know, needing to shift from uh, believing that we have the answers to um, listening and getting answers from people that are most proximate to the issues. And so I think that there are a lot of ways that we can contribute, but I do think that one of the most immediate ways is acknowledging that there are systems issues, that this is a systemic issue. This is not about a group of people with bad behavior that produce these outcomes. Um, and, and I think that we are at least in a pivotal moment following George Floyd where there is renewed uh, interest and there are people whose um, rose-colored glasses have come off and they're seeing things for the first time. And then there's those of us that feel quite validated um, in, in having our experiences heard and seen, which feels like in a significantly different way than we've seen in the past. Thank you. Kara? Great. Well, first of all, thank you so much for the invitation um, on this important topic, um, which I think all the philanthropy is grappling with as a sector. Um, there, philanthropy, as, as we all know, is not a monolith. And so you have different ways to think about moving money from individual donors to donor advised funds, community foundations like Shonda um, discussed, and also private and family philanthropy. So I would say a couple things that I see happening in a very practical way is that you see really increased immediate response giving. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, uh, we joined with a national effort looking at investing above our normal giving to BIPOC cultural arts organizations. It was about $160 million um, dollar initiative that was led by Ford um, and, and there are about 16 different foundations across the country um, in Minnesota as part of that. I think so there have been a number of different ways that there have been increased investments in the short term. I think what Shonda was talking about, in which I would agree, and what we've been doing at McKnight is actually beginning to shift to a much deeper level of discussion around how race actually plays into the issues that we are trying to address. And so I think for many years, um, we focused only on economics, which is a, a key differentiator in terms of inequity, but we hadn't really taken a deeper look at race and the impact of race and policy, uh, even in terms of your acknowledgement uh, uh, as we started this conversation. The other piece I would say is that there has been a significant, I think, collective consciousness across this country that it is not individual behaviors of a brown person, a black person, an Asian person. It is actually um, emblematic of really deep and entrenched power dynamics where the folks who have held power for many, many years have been more um, monolithic in terms of their lived experience. And so how we define a problem, um, who is a spectator and who is an actor, I think those are shifting and um, we recently went through a refresh on our strategy and the phrase that I think um, even before George Floyd and we, we talk about dual pandemics, um, racism in this country and also um, the COVID pandemic um, and how those are so intimately linked. We, we, we um, published this phrase in our strategic framework that said that we are brutally realistic and fiercely optimistic. And I think I've not seen in philanthropy in the last 12, 13 years that I've been in the field, um, this idea that we have a social responsibility for us to understand and embrace that we are not finished as a society and it's an opportunity for us 
to actually begin to think about um, um, as, as the late um, um, Congressman John Lewis said, get in and stay in, get in and stay in. And I think that's gonna be the, the longer term work um, that you see playing out in all kinds of ways across the sector inside too, a lot of inside pushing around policy, increasing giving, legislation, um, transparency. So it's an inside push from those of us within and it's an outside push. Thank you. Trista. Hi, everybody. I'm, I'm honored to be on this panel with these all-stars. I think um, this is a, a phenomenal question. My work is about um, the future of philanthropy and nonprofits and, and what's coming next. And what we've seen over these last couple of months is trends that are really sitting in that space of what's next for philanthropy that I had expected to be on a, you know, a five to 10 year cycle is happening over the course of months. So we are in a movement moment where change first comes slow and then comes very quickly. And so we're seeing a lot of amazing efforts across foundations and across the country that are really about people impacted by problems being at the table and in the decision-making seat when it comes to solutions. We're seeing collective action where there is a shared North Star about where we are going and dollars kind of building together and organizations and organizers and people coming together to, to build that more beautiful and equitable future. And then we're seeing a lot more flexibility on outcomes. So in the normal philanthropic context, in the beginning of the grant proposal, you are laying out exactly what the process is gonna look like and what your outcomes are going to be and you're, you're judged on if you can read those outcomes. But as we live in these times where uh, change is exponential and happens very, very quickly, you can't decide beforehand what those outcomes are gonna look like. And so I'm seeing more foundations being flexible and being open to what that possible change is. And as a result of that, we're seeing community both taking the lead and actually making much bigger bets than they would have if they had to be accountable for those set outcomes on the front end. So I think this is a time of, of great transformation and great opportunity. Jonathan, what's what's going on in the, in the business sector specifically? Yeah, good morning, Amelius, and, and thank you for having me today. Um, I also am like super humbled to be joined by this incredible group of women that I have tremendous admiration for and grateful to, to be able to lean into to this discussion. It's a really important one. You know, like philanthropy, the, the private sector, the business community is certainly not a monolith. Um, so I'm going to try to speak kind of across what I'm seeing with regards to how the business community is, is leaning in. You started by talking about you know, any number of statements. It felt like you know, in the hours after George Floyd's death, uh, we couldn't go an hour without another corporation jumping in and jumping up to, to put words on paper and talk about you know, the impact of his death um, and what they, they may be doing and thinking about moving forward. My good friend, Gary Cunningham, who we lost to the DC market, um, often used to remind me that words without deeds are like a garden full of weeds. And that's been something that's really stuck with me through, um, through this moment where we're, we're responding to statements. Um, I think that all of the statements that came out came from a really genuine place. I believe that. Um, I also know a lot of CEOs and business leaders and you know, private sector leadership has a tendency just to try to fix things. How quickly can we fix something? Um, and I think that's a really dangerous space to be in when we're dealing with something as significant as racial equity and racism in this country. Um, you know, George Floyd's death is what precipitated 
you know, days of unrest in our community and, and this conversation and this moment that we have. But at the end of the day, we're responding to 500 years of structural, historical and institutional racism, and we can't rush it. Uh, so the number of calls that I took from business leaders in the 72 hours after George Floyd was murdered, were um, it started with, I've got a half a million dollars, we wanna put it somewhere. Um, you know, my immediate response was that's great, but like, let's do this right and not right now. Um, so I think there's this tension of urgency to get something out, but also to think about what is the sustained work that needs to be done. Um, and I have real concerns. Um, you know, how do we sustain the way that you know, so many of us, myself included, felt in the 72 hours after George Floyd's death, six months down the road, right? We're 137 days since George Floyd was killed. Um, and 12 months down the road and 18 months down the road. Um, and there's a feeling that that urgency is eroding. Um, in fact, it was 10 days after his death when I heard the first person say, boy, it feels like things are going back to normal. We can get focused on this, this global pandemic. So, so those are some of the dynamics that are at play in the private sector, but we are starting to see some examples of real tangible action. It starts with things like hiring and advancement and procurement. And you're seeing some of our, our, our biggest companies leaning into that. Target has made a commitment to increasing their hiring of people of color by 25%. And it's gonna take some really specific and measurable starting points like that uh, to begin the process of changing the systems that have gotten us to where we are today. Thank you. I, you know, as I listen to you all uh, on the philanthropy side, it's clear that you know what I heard is these issues are systemic and we need to approach them that way. There's a need for flexibility and 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 there are various examples of organizations doing that, but also a need to include people around the table who might not normally be around the table, particularly those who are closest to the issue. Uh, and and Jonathan, your comments speak to why I you know, on a personal level thought this series was important because, you know, after the, the protests are done and, and I don't mean to, to take away anything from the, the, the people who are out protesting and rallying and et cetera, how do we make sure we don't just get back to normal and uh, forget about this? So in the, about a week after George Floyd was killed, uh, the mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Fry, uh, created, uh, launched Minneapolis Forward, the Community Now Coalition. Jonathan, you're one of the co-chairs. Could you speak a little bit to what's been that work and what, you know, what's come of that and what may be down the pipe uh, relating to that work? Yeah, happy to do that. You know, I'll start by talking a little bit about the origin story. Um, when the mayor approached me to talk about Minneapolis Forward and a recovery effort, and we were looking at you know, recovery efforts from natural disasters to unrest um, in regions all across the country, one of the things he brought to me was how we need to do this different. Uh, that was a, like, he, he, must, he must have said different like 20 times during the course of the conversation that we had about this recovery and transformation effort that he envisioned. Um, I will tell you that I, I took great pause with that. I said, Mayor, um, it feels like the most sane thing that you could do is call the CEO of the Chamber of Commerce to help with a recovery effort. So walk me through how you're thinking about this. Um, and you know, that's where he really started to frame out this idea of a community-led, community-visioned, um, community-driven effort, um, and was really clear on the role for individuals like me, um, you know, white male straight leaders in power who need to bring that power and access to resource to the work 
and hand it over to the community. Um, so I think that's been a little bit of the magic of how this coalition has evolved. Uh, very quickly established a core strategy team. So a group of 12 leaders who are deeply grounded in community, whose day jobs by and large are focused on and have been focused on building community um, in these corridors that were most significantly impacted. They are the group that curated the eight areas of action ranging from the retention of companies to reimagining public space. And they're the group that has been leading the work around building strategy and very specific tactics with regards to how we're going to get to sustained solutions. Um, and that's a very different approach, kind of turned the, the traditional rebuilding transformation approach on its head by saying, you know, we have a group of community leaders who know the community, who are connected to the community, and who, by the way, have had a vision. We didn't have to start with a blank page. There is a vision for what these corridors you know, could and should be. We now have an opportunity to think about these spaces that have historically been un and underinvested and think about how do we double down on that? How do we, how do we provide access to capital? How do we create spaces for ownership? Um, and I believe that not only can we do it, we're going to do it and we're gonna set a model for what this type of reinvention looks like across the country. Great, thank you. Uh, so my, my second question, uh, and this relates to some of the things that, that was said earlier. So in July, uh, several Twin Cities philanthropic community org leaders, uh, including one of our participants, Shonda, uh, stepped forward to create the Minnesota Philanthropic Collective committed to combating anti-Blackness and realizing racial justice. In a statement announcing this initiative, the leaders highlighted the need for long-term transformation to establish and enhance policies, procedures, and practices to address anti-Blackness and work towards racial justice. So when we think about the philanthropic community, what are some of those policies, procedures, and practices that, that need to change? So I think I, I, the best way for me, I think, to enter into this um, response is to take us back to the first question, which is what is philanthropy's role in naming disrupting and eliminating racism? What is our role and have we done enough um, to move that way? And do we see it as both an internal and external exercise? Do we understand in way, ways in which philanthropy has been complicit to what has happened? And if so, then what is our responsibility to doing no harm moving forward? And, um, and in that process, doing that together, recognizing that there are those of us that um, are, you know, people of color that are, are, are now moving more and more into philanthropy that are coming with a different lived experience. Uh, other people in philanthropy that are coming in with lived experience that may be coming from an urban core. But there's a recognition that there are uh, people working in philanthropy that are in communities that aren't as diverse, that are still looking for ways to think about how they might approach communities that are changing or how they might be part of an effort to address uh, systemic issues that are happening in our state or in our country or in our region. And so we um, were very committed to establishing a collective body that was putting resources to that work, but ultimately it is about how do we evolve ourselves so that we can be better partners uh, to our community in this effort. Thank you. Others, what, what are areas where you think there needs to be some changes? I'll just add to what Shonda said. I think, 
um, foundations that don't use a racial equity frame for their work exacerbate systemic inequality because dollars flow to the easiest to reach because a, a nonprofit wants to be able to send a report back saying that they had amazing results and you should fund us again. And so that means that those dollars are usually flowing to white communities and that gap gets larger and larger. And I think one of the reasons why Minnesota has so many racial disparities is because we have an amazing vibrant philanthropic sector that is putting a lot of dollars into systems that are great at causing inequality. Um, and so the, the way to solve for that is to develop your uh, racial equity frame for all of your work to make sure that it isn't just a little corner of the portfolio or something that you do occasionally, but every single decision that you're making, you're figuring out who is the hardest to reach on this specific issue and how do we make sure that dollars reach that person that's hardest to reach. And when you do that, it makes the system work better for everybody. So I think that is the, the transformation that philanthropy needs to go through. I'll just add one, one piece, and I agree with uh, both um, what Shonda and Trista have been saying, and also their work um, for many, many years in this space um, um, and the different roles that they've played. I would say the other piece, and this is a field shift, is really being very transparent about um, where your money goes, um, being really clear about why we ask for reports or requirements and how those in, in and of themselves need to be looked at in terms of a move towards uh, what's called trust-based philanthropy, which is more relational. Um, it also is changing the way that you think about board composition, senior staff composition, uh, McKnight. Um, we're a majority women of color senior leadership team. Um, and, and that's happened um, with deliberate engagement. Um, we are um, very transparent about the trends and the different the different composition of staff and we're really clear about an equitable process for hiring um, and making that a really systems-based approach. We're looking at every part of the organization and really distinctly clear about where resources go. And we have open conversations about that. And that really is because we've been committed to learning together. And, um, and it's not always easy, <laughs> uh, but I will say um, it, it is a very different way and we're not the only ones in philanthropy doing that. Um, there are many who are saying, let's actually talk about, about these issues um, as a regular part of how we learn and how we think about change and how we think about power. Again, I'm gonna keep going back to this idea of power. Um, um, who has it? How do, we, how do we understand our own power and how, do, how does everybody stay engaged? Um, so I appreciate, um, Jonathan, what you're saying. It's, it's, it's a both and, like everybody has to stay in, get in, stay in, stay engaged, and everybody can start today. You don't have to have it perfect. You don't have to have a perfect plan. And I think we need to, to realize that um, what we're trying to accomplish hasn't been done yet. And so let's just get in there and, and stay in and, and, and move wherever we are, you can step in. Thank you. So Jonathan, in the, in the business space, uh, what are what are what needs to change in terms of policies, procedures, practices? Uh, so you have a couple of thoughts on this. You know, a big piece of it is with leadership. You know, hearts and minds need to be changed, and there are many leaders, great leaders in this community, who have been on their own journey to better understand where we're at and how we've gotten here. Uh, we need to accelerate that, and we need to do it more broadly, it can't just be you know, our Fortune 500 cohort that is focused on you know, evolving 
their leadership because we know that 80% of our companies employ 50 people or less. So we need to do that at scale and figure out how to do that. At the same time, we need to, to get to what I mentioned earlier that you know, it's about hiring, it's about advancement, it's about procurement. It's about these internal policies that to date have held us back. How do we make sure that we are hiring more people of color, that we are advancing more people of color, that when we think about our supply chain, I mean, we think about the localization of our supply chain. We are a, a region and a state that boasts some of the, the greatest you know, BIPOC and immigrant entrepreneurs who are, are great resources to supply and resilient access to supply. And we're living through a global pandemic where we saw a global supply chain fail. We ought to be thinking about how we think about this dual economic recovery in a way that you know, elevates and advances our communities of color who have been so critical, but have often been, been left out of opportunity. Thank you. Uh, you know, Kara, you said, you mentioned the, the staffing, the board composition and, and, and leadership of philanthropy. And I think that that's true also in the, the corporate sector, not just here. Uh, one of our uh, viewers, posed a question and, and it was related to a question I had intended to ask, which is the leadership at the executive level of many of our largest foundations and corporations locally and nationally are overwhelmingly white and don't match the racial and ethnic diversity in the communities where they're based. So what has to happen to change that? You know, what, what happened at McKnight so that you have majority women of color in senior leadership roles? Uh, so I, I think this is um, a really important one, and I will defer in some ways to my colleagues having um, come into the region about four years ago. I would say there are some unique challenges locally here in terms of the way that the population um, and diversity um, has emerged over the past 40 years. It's very different. I, I you know, when I came into this region, um, I had a lot of people come up to me and ask, how did you get to a position of leadership as a woman of color. Um, I've never seen women of color in these large institutions in these positions. And I was confused by that and troubled by that actually. Um, and so I think I think that there are some, some unique circumstances here in terms of sort of immigration population um, and then actually the timeliness of that in the last 40 years. I, I'm not saying that as an excuse, but I think it's, I've learned that it's a very unique challenge here. Um, I would say at McKnight, to be really specific, we started on a process of inquiry about four years ago um, and explicitly, and we began to actually try to understand individually our experiences and try to create a space for that. So it just, it's a lot of work, basically. It's a work and it's a commitment and you keep showing up. Um, Jonathan pointed out um, hearts and minds. Part of it is that our minds have been really shaped by a dominant narrative that individual people need to pull, you know, this is the old framework, pull your, yourself up from your bootstrap. So some of that has to be challenged head on with data and facts. And so I think that um, there's uh, so much information out there that people need to take an opportunity to learn. And you actually need to be able to get to a point where you can trust each other enough to have tough conversations. Um, and then those conversations have to actually not push towards consensus. Cause I think consensus is actually sometimes um, takes it to a power place. And so you, you actually just have to sit with some of the tension and you have to look at all your practices and policies and say, who are you gonna work with vendor wise? How are you gonna do recruitment? How is racism or bias built into your systems? So a lot of it is actually just tough work um, and then you have to actually articulate, I think, for many of, of the staff that are at McKnight now, 
I think the articulation of our values really draws in people who want to help make that a reality. So again, I think the more of the institution, not individuals can begin to take stands. And then um, I love the phrase that Jonathan um, brought, <laughs> brought back in, you have to act. And then hopefully you can be humble enough to say what you've learned. Um, because if you don't do that, if you, then, then, then you're not gonna proceed and move forward. So again, policies, creating a culture, articulating values, um, and knowing that you're gonna make mistakes and you wanna just keep going. Thank you. Other thoughts? I'll add to that. I think there is a, a, a personal bias that we all have that we think that we're amazing and we wanna hire somebody like us. And so when I interview, anytime I see a, a Humphrey grad of color, I'm like, there's just something about them that's amazing. And it's because I'm sort of projecting on what I think is the, the right sort of person for roles based on my own experience. Um, and so you have to build for that. You have to make sure that you're putting steps into your system that don't allow you to keep on tripping in the same place. And so one, I think that we need to hold our uh, recruiting firms responsible for building their own networks of diverse leaders that are already in the community, but are just not connected to those social or personal networks. The other piece that uh, I put in place in the last couple of organizations that I've led is, and I know nothing about sports, so my husband's like, stop using this analogy because you're not using it right, but I'm going to use it again, um, is the Rooney rule. So the expectation that in um, the final three candidates for any position that we have open, there is at least one person of color. And what always happens in the process is we do the regular thing where we put it on the job board or we have the recruitment firm, they come back with an all white panel. And then we say, go back, you got to figure this out. I need an equally qualified person of color. And if that means that you need to be on the phone and you need to be working through networks and you need to see if somebody's willing to switch sectors or leave a job that they've been doing an amazing job at for a really long time, whoever's doing the recruitment has to figure that out. And then we will make a decision based on the appropriate candidate pool. It stretches out every single search. And as leaders, you have to be willing to do that because until you build that diverse network at your leadership team, you're, you're not gonna be able to just casually, naturally find people for those roles because it is a network that you have not built over time. Yeah, I'd like to add to that too. And that is, um, uh, adding to what, what they're saying, but being really clear from my point of view that we need to be hired equitably at every single level. And that we, we need to, I think, in many of our places, do a reassessment on what um, we see and who we see as qualified candidates. What are the, the qualifying, um, you know, what does professionalism look like? What does you know, do we need degreed uh, people for these roles? What are transferable skills? Because I think that we have made hiring not just about who's our, in our network, but we've made it so literal to the job description that we're unable to see um, the value of lived experience. We're unable to see the value of a different network. We're unable to see the, uh, the value of difference. And so this cannot just be about representation. Um, we have to be committed to um, pipelining talent. And I think many of us that are in the role and especially for our white allies, sponsorship is critical. How you talk about leaders and leaders of colors in rooms that um, have influential people in it matter. Um, and so I think that we need to do that. 
And um, I don't know why this popped up in my mind and I've been watching a number of, of, of things, but uh, a comedian that I watch every now and then um, talked about how we have made um, passive aggressiveness passive aggressiveness, a sentiment, a sentiment, sentiment for professionalism. And that um, somehow, and Car- this goes to what you're saying, is that if we're at a table and we're talking different and we're seeing things differently, um, that is not a disruption to business. That's an improvement to your business. And that until we begin to see it that way, we will we'll move people out because we want to get the task done and if what we're really about is solving our most critical issues, then we need to have diverse thinkers and to be able to have diversion conversations at a table. And I think all of these things go together because if you get someone of color at the table at the senior level, um, they are managing a lot of fights that most people will never understand that they're fighting. And there is a different weight and a different responsibility. And so we need to be equipped differently. And that equipping also comes from people within the organization, our peers, our supporters, our partners, our businesses. And so that's, you know, th- there's an ecosystem that I think we need to really look at. If I could really quickly just add, you know, one thing we haven't talked about here is the demographic and market driven components of everything that we're talking about. We know that our, our kind of urban counties, Hennepin and Ramsey today have a youth population that is majority people of color, and that's the that's the trend. So when I talk about a market-driven response, and we're starting to see that, but 15 months ago, the Business Roundtable, the largest companies in this country, migrated from shareholder primacy as the purpose of a corporation to an economy that serves all Americans. Like, make no mistake, that's a direct response to the fact that employees and consumers are expecting that. Kara, you talked a little bit about the values of a foundation or philanthropy as you think about you know, employee attraction. Same thing in the private sector. It's just with a little bit more of a market-driven um, aspect to it. And I think we're going to see more of that. What we need is, you know, people to expect it. Expect leadership at all levels within private sector companies. If you're going to go work for a company, take a look at their senior leadership team. Um, if you're going to be a consumer for a brand, take a look at who they're employing and who they're advancing. Um, it's going to take you know that connectivity between you know, the supply and demand side to continue to hold the private sector accountable in this space. Thank you all. I want to move us into, uh, we've got great questions that have come from our audience and, and some relate to this, what we've just been talking about uh, and picking up on, on something you said, Jonathan, just about, you know, what the, the role in the corporate space, but also something Shonda said about the importance of hiring at all levels. And so, so essentially this question for you, Jonathan, relates to uh, internships. And if we think about, you know, our diverse population in the Twin Cities, uh, the question is about the role of unpaid internships and, you know, the, barriers that puts up for some people to take an unpaid internship in the summer, uh, for example, and has there been any, are there discussions, are there pushes within the Twin Cities, within the business community to to move toward paid internships uh, from an equity, you know, thinking about it from an equity lens? Can you speak to that at all? Thanks for the question. I mean, it's a great point. Um, I think about, you know, the friend's kid, that gets an opportunity to, to have access to an internship 
um, because of who they know or who their parent knows. Um, that's very real and it's been pervasive um, over the arc of generations. I do think that we're seeing a shift into the paid internship space. You step up and right track um, the partnerships between the cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul and their school districts is a great example of, of doing that. Uh, private sector led, in fact, my predecessor helped found the step up program. I now co-chair that work. Um, those are all paid opportunities you know, where the private sector is saying, we're gonna do this and we're gonna do it, you know, not just because it's you know, probably the right thing to do and it helps develop the next generation of talent and it absolutely does, but it also prepares and equips leaders and companies to, to receive that talent um, and we pay them along the way. So I think we should continue to, to be really committed to driving a future where you know, the, the unpaid internship is a relic of the past. Thank you. Uh, Shonda, or this is in relation to something Shonda said, you talked about lived experience, which I think is, uh, is, is very important and, and why we need representation at, all throughout an organization. Uh, so uh, a question related to that, uh, a report by the Kapoor Center, and I may get the name wrong, the Kapoor Center for Social Impact uh, on Workforce Barriers says that 75% of whites do not have any non-white friends in their social network. So what can be done to connect white business leaders, white leaders of philanthropic organizations, board members, et cetera, to the challenges and lived experiences of non-white members of our community? How do we, what can we do in that space? The way that it's played out in my work is with the podcast that I lead at the foundation, um, Conversations with Shonda. And it was um, essentially um, started as uh, one of those being the outcome is how do we get um, people more familiar with the issues that are happening in our community? How do we bring uh, stories of people that have lived through, how do we bring the life story of people that have lived through our criminal justice system, who have lived through our schools, that have lived through economic hard times, how do we bring those stories to life so that we can bring humanity to the issues, move beyond the data point to understand what it's like to actually navigate those systems? How do we bring, again, diverse thinking and perspectives to a table um, where people can listen in the privacy of their own homes on a walk, um, because we know that uh, people are talking about these issues. Um, we also know that most often they're talking about them in communities that they're already comfortable with. That once they get into a more diverse environment, they're usually not the trust, not the safety, and not the willingness to have those harder conversations. And so how do we begin to build a foundation for that to happen? Um, you know, I, I personally am very, very open to meeting with people, but I also have had to decide that um, it's also, it, I have a role, but people have to be willing to diversify their own networks. They have to be willing to get out there and do their own work. If they're not willing to pick up a call, if they're not willing to take people to coffee um, that, you know, folks that don't look like them, I'm not sure I, I can help them. They're, they're not on the road yet. So I mentioned earlier that we have a very uh, generous community in the, in the Twin Cities with uh, a history of giving. And so two questions that came in uh, uh, before the event started that are from people who want to give. And so one of the questions is what are the best organizations in the Twin Cities or nationally to support with regard to dismantling racism? And then uh, another question 
uh, where would their where would their donations have the biggest impact in terms of whether it's to something related to education, training or education and training, housing, food security? What's the where are the greatest needs in our our community, Trista? Yeah, I I think that there is a a habit that often happens with donors where they say, what is the education need or the food need and how do I jump into that space? And there's an analogy that we use in social justice circles about if um, there's a river and there's babies that are floating down the river, people sort of run and try to grab the babies and save them. And somebody has to ask the question, who's throwing the babies in the river and let's figure that out. And I think donors are much more comfortable in that space of supporting food shelves and those sorts of things. I would like to see a lot more donors funding in the organizing space, in the 501c4 space, um, to really make sure that we are getting to the root causes of the systemic inequality that exists in our community. This is not about band-aids. This is about building new systems that actually work for everybody purposefully. Um, instead of trying to, to solve on the back end. So I, I think there's a, a number of organizations locally and nationally, um, Black Lives Matter nationally, make sure you're supporting the right one and not the sort of copycat um, groups that have sort of built up to work cross purposes. Locally, there's uh, the African American Leadership Forum, the Black Visions Collective, uh, the Minnesota Healing Justice Network, uh, and then the Headwaters Foundation for Justice has a, a giving, um, giving project which teaches you how to be an engaged donor and fundraise uh, and support community-led work. So I, I think it's about getting to the root cause of problems. Can I just add something else um, to, to that night? I agree, uh, Trista, with uh, systems approach and, and again, organizing for, for more people to be able to participate and have agency in both defining how a problem is um, understood, the parameters of the problem, setting the agenda. Um, I think we have to do that together um, and better with, with more people at the table. Uh, but I would also encourage anybody who's wanting to get involved to, to take this as an opportunity to think about the principles, some of which we've talked about today, instead of looking at organizations, um, which I could certainly give you uh, some, but just to think about an opportunity to get to know more diverse um, organizations in this region, set out what would you like to know? And it's a great way to build relationships um, across um, maybe groups that you haven't been involved in. I'll say one. Um, just because um, I'm a personal donor is the Coalition for Asian American Leaders. Um, they have done an extraordinary job both within a Pan-Asian community um, and really strong leaders, community leadership, but they've also been an extraordinarily um, powerful partner across racial ethnic lines and multiple identities. And so um, again, there I would just encourage people to think about where do you not have relationships? Where do you not understand? Um, certainly similar to Shonda, um, you know, we as leaders are resources for communities and also our foundations. I mean, you could probably look through some of the work that Shonda has been funding through her work at the Minneapolis Foundation, the same thing with McKnight, but I would encourage you to think about what are you trying to, to solve for in the world and who might you want to get to know? Um, it's great, lots of great organizations. Um, I'm like watching the clock and seeing if I have time to throw in one more question. So I will, I will, uh, I'll share a question that came in, uh, okay, uh, that came in uh, also before the event started. This is from a, a individual who is, uh, has been actively involved in, in helping serving on a board of, of one of our large 
foundations in the Twin Cities and, and he's a retired management consultant. So I will read part of his statement and then there's a question at the end. I'm a former board chair of a large Twin Cities foundation, a retired management consultant. I'm a white guy who lives in a Minneapolis suburb. Here's what I've learned. We have great people in this community who all want the same thing, but we don't know how to get there. Two things I know for sure. We don't listen enough to the communities affected. We don't work together. Too many nonprofits with organizational objectives and, and the need to take credit. Business is clueless on how to move the needle. Government has the money, but no answers. We all need to table our self-interest and develop a new model. So my question is, how do we move toward a new model? And what does that new model look like? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in just quickly as the, the white guy um, on the panel. Um, I think that question or that you know, statement that we all want the same thing is right. I think the follow-up question is, but what are you willing to give up? And that's the thing that so many people are wrestling with right now, um, particularly, I would tell you, white men. And, and that, that wrestling is not going all that well because I'm, I'm not convinced that the cohort, and again, it's not a monolith, is, is willing to give up what's necessary to give up in order to make sure that we're advancing a more just and equitable society and region um, that we serve. So that's just something that I wrestle with all the time and as I talk to other leaders. That's a, a big piece of the equation if we wanna to get to where we wanna get around hiring and advancing and, um, and seeing people that look different than me at all levels within organizations, um, it's gonna mean that we have to give something up. I mean, that, that's a really big, big question. I'm not sure we can answer it in the, in the sure. remaining time. And I don't even know, um, you know, what I could say and maybe following with Jonathan is that I have witnessed in this city people that care deeply about education. Um, but when it was time to make budget cuts, when one side of town was going to have uh, cuts to lessen another side of town's cuts, people doubled down and fought for those changes not to happen. And so time and time again, I witnessed um, a, a verbal commitment of change, but watch behaviors that undermine the very thing that I do think that we're seeking. And so I think the ultimate um, test of this is exactly what Jonathan said, is what are we willing to give up? What are we willing to see differently? Who are we willing to be at the table with that we haven't been at the table before? Um, you know, I am coming to the realization that as much as I want to solve um, the, the world's problems, I'm really just starting with the problem of today and figuring out how can I use my realm of influence, the relationships that I have to make a difference every single day. How can I push myself to look at things differently, act differently, be bolder on the issues at the tables that I'm at? And I think that that's ultimately, if we're all doing that, maybe we can get to a different place. And when we see the, um, the behaviors that bring us back to the status quo behaviors, if we're unwilling to challenge it, then we're willing to have what we have. Thank you. I, I don't know where the time went, but it, but it, it, it went. And so uh, I wanna close this out with uh, a question if I could ask you to answer this briefly. So I'm, I'm gonna try to be hopeful and, and I'd like to believe that what we're seeing is not just a moment, but that this is different. So if assuming you feel the same way, uh, and, and maybe you don't, but if you, you know, what about what's going on 
makes you believe that this might lead to something more than just us getting back to normal, that this, that the change that's been talked about may actually happen. Bingo. I, I think um, there is a beginning realization that like Wellstone said a long time ago, we all do better when we all do better. And there's a ton of research and data that say that equity is a superior growth strategy. If you get to the bottom of this, it isn't that all the white folks in the community get a smaller share of the pie, it's a much bigger pie. And so we have, we have built our community on this sort of frame of pushing down and holding back people of color with the expectation that then we get to hold on to more. But what we're seeing locally and nationally is our society is beginning to collapse because of that. And so we have to decide, are we gonna hold this structure all the way to the bitter end and there is nothing left? Or are we gonna build something new? And the, the future isn't something that happens to us. It's something that we create with the decisions that we make. We have to decide what the future wants, we want it to look like and what we're willing to do to make us get there. Can I just say um, and this, we've got so little time and these are big questions and, and deserve a lot longer discussion. Um, but, but I'll start, I'll finish where I started, which is that we are unfinished. We are unfinished. And I think for those who thought the world was a certain way and, it, and we're done, I think where I'm hopeful is that we have understood by, by all kinds of different um, engagements or disruptions, planned and unplanned, that we are all participants and no one can be a spectator if we're going to achieve a new vision together. And it's not a scarcity model, though that's sort of oftentimes how we talk about it. There are powers that have to change. I agree with you, Jonathan. But, but um, I was on a, a webinar uh, last week that was hosted by the Women's Foundation and Dr. Joy um, talked about the healing um, of our communities as an opportunity for transformation. And I believe the more we understand each other and really sit within the discomfort and recognize and see differently what we have done and what we've created and what we've sort of implicitly let, been complicit with all of us in different ways. Um, and begin to sort of engage differently. I, I, I believe that we, it will not happen on its own, but I'm, I'm encouraged by the level of reflection and action and the level of discussion um, in this country and around the world that has never happened before because people are, are demanding to be participants and not spectators in shaping our future. So I, I feel hopeful. I feel like it is different. Thank you. Anybody else? Oh, yeah, one of our core values at the Minneapolis Foundation is that uh, hope is essential and um, we know that we can only do this work and be in the work if we believe that we can contribute to something better. So I think that's one thing. I think for me personally, you know, being an African-American person, um, you know, coming from a community of people that are highly resilient and that have um, had hope in the next generation and have stood on the shoulders of those before us, I can't help but think of John Lewis about getting into good trouble and Sometimes that good trouble manifests itself in our lifetime and sometimes it doesn't. But I think that there are enough people out here getting in good trouble. And if we pay attention to those folks and arm ourselves um, and surround them and be inspired by them, I think that we can remain hopeful. If we spend our energy on what is negative and not working, I think that's a different outcome. And so I, I choose hope. Thank you. Jonathan? I'm hopeful for lots of reasons and I think um, 
Shonda, Kara, and Trista just highlighted much of that. We've got incredible leadership um, in philanthropy and in the private sector. And we're still talking about this 137 days later. We're gonna be talking about this 137 days from now. We know that um, we didn't get here overnight. And I think there's a growing realization that it's gonna take a sustained effort uh, to lead into the future. And, and that's new. I think we've a lot of the fits and starts of efforts to close the achievement gap and do all of the things that we wanted to do um, have expected results overnight. Um, I think we're, we're realizing that, that we're in this for the long haul. I'm gonna spend the rest of my career uh, fighting this fight alongside of these incredible people. Thank you. Thank you all. This has been a great conversation. I've, folks are putting, not questions, but they're actually saying this has been a great conversation. So uh, I appreciate uh, Shonda and Kara and Trista and Jonathan for, for joining me on my own set half of myself, but as well as the College of Liberal Arts. Uh, to those who've been watching online, thanks for participating in uh, this What's Next Roundtable brought to you by the College of Liberal Arts, where we're reimagining the 21st century liberal arts experience as a diverse, energetic community of students, faculty, staff, and alumni and donors. We seek to make a difference at home and throughout the world. Together, we are shattering expectations about what a liberal arts college can be. Uh, I would join you to, I would, Join, I would ask you to join us for our next What's Next Roundtable. Uh, there are three currently scheduled in this series. Our next one is called Walking the Talk, Be Inspired by CLA Grads Using Their Influence for Social Change. That will take place on October 22nd at noon. Uh, we have one on November 19th about uh, that will explore what's next with regard to K through 12 education and one in December that will discuss transformation and policing. You can learn more about these upcoming events and register at z.umn.edu slash CLA what's next, all one word, no apostrophe. Uh, that's z.umn.edu slash CLA what's next, no apostrophe. Stay well, safe and hopeful, and have a great afternoon. Thank you. <laughs>